This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined tonight by Alexandra, Helen Nicholas and Josh Nelson is with us once again. Hello to you both. Good evening. Hello. And as I promised last week, the cave is dropping one by one. <laughs> Next week, there's just going to be two of you. And the week after, Thomas, you may be by yourself or someone who will survive. Or as I said, Faith, maybe we'll just be taking the show over. It's like Radio Battle Royale. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I wasn't informed of this. That, that's brutal. <laughs> Sorry <All right>. to <laughs> notify you of your impending doom. <laughs> hey, a quick thank you to everybody who did subscribe during Radiothon. We badgered you an awful lot about that, but the badgering has paid off. We all got news within the last last hour that Triple R had record numbers of subscribers this year. So that is absolutely fabulous. Thank you again. It's appreciated. It goes an awful long way. Now, on tonight's show, a couple of films that have recently appeared on local video on demand subscription services that we felt were worth looking at. Nocturama, the latest film by French filmmaker Bertrand Bonolo. No, I'm not saying that right, am I? Bonello. Bonello. Bonello, uh, which screened recently at the Melbourne International Film Festival, and it's only the end of the world. The most recent film by French-Canadian filmmaker Xavier Dolan, which screened in March as part of the French Film Festival. But first, something completely different. <laughs> Kingsman, this golden circle, is the sequel to the 2014 spy action comedy film Kingsman The Secret Service. Now, both films films are directed by Matthew Vaughan, both are written by Vaughan and Jane Goldman, and both are based on the comic book series by Mark Miller and Dave Gibbons. Starting one year after the end of the first film, this new film reacquaints us with Gary Eggsy Unwin, played by Taron Egerton, who is now very much an established member of the covert elite British spy organisation known as Kingsman. When a new threat in the form of an international drug cartel led by Poppy Adams, played by Julianne Moore, all but destroys Kingsman, Eggsy and fellow surviving member Merlin, played by Mark Strong, look for help in the USA. Now, we're doing this film because it was the, the first film was something of a surprise hit. And I think, Josh, you and I were both surprised by how much we enjoyed it, as yep. were a lot of people. Uh, so we came to the film on the strength of how much we enjoyed is the first con- one. Is this a confession? <laughs> a sort of- and Alex, you've seen this without having seen the first one. So I'm kind of curious to know <laughs> what the hell you made of this film. Oh boy. I still- not having ridden the wave of goodwill from the first film. I still love you both very much. Much, yeah. and I have respect. There's for you. a but coming here. <laughs> I must admit, while I was watching this film, I was thinking, "Oh God, Alex." There's a particular scene you think that, that, that happened. Yeah, yeah. Like, Oops, this is just it's Alex jumped the really... shot. The film jumped the Alex shark. <laughs> it's um, yeah. I was I was hopeful that my experience with this film was simply because I was missing something that I needed to pick up from the first film, and I was quite excited at the words "golden circle" because it reminded me of that amazing pineapple that I had when I was a kid. <laughs> God, somebody please make a movie about Golden Circle, the pineapple company. They're amazing. This is like Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Chav. This is bad news. I had major questions about my relationship to cinema. It's like maybe we're breaking up. This is it's like it's like the Quentin Tarantino Martin Amos mashup. I never knew I hated so much. 
I had a difficult experience. I I actually, I I transcended. It's like I went on a trip. Um, I wouldn't even call it hatred. I just disengaged from culture. It's like, does Julianne Moore really need money? We can, you know, we're a a little community radio station, but we've proven that we can pull the funds in if we need them. If Julianne Moore needs the money, we can help her out. (laughs) She doesn't have to do this. That's, That's where I went with this film. I thought she was one of the best things about it, though. I did enjoy her in it. You know what? I thought, you know, Elton John swearing. That's something that I'm not going to get bored of. <laughs> bam, bam. Like. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, Josh, I, I think you and I maybe are on the same page as perhaps this was a tad disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I remember texting you as soon as I'd walked out of the original Kingsman going, have you seen it yet? It was a real guilty pleasure. I'm not sure if I should be confessing that before the show. I mean, this was a couple of years ago yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm about to say something that I'm sure is going to be misinterpreted and no doubt will come back at me in some form. I don't think this film should have had female characters in it because I think they're treated with such disdain and yeah, the lip service yeah. of the female characters. And I, I, I really need to emphasize that I, I actually think females should be in cinema. This is not what <laughs> I'm saying. But given the quality and the caliber of the performance here, Julianne Moore is one of my all-time favorites. Her character as the antagonist in this film gets to do absolutely nothing. Emily Watson is in this film for about 30 seconds and she's another stunning performer um, and, and some of the other females well, Haley Berry has a horrib- Berry? horribly nothing past again it's yeah what a waste time and again I don't think I've seen a film that has had such a high caliber of performers all almost uniformly wasted with the exception of Colin Firth Strong and and the Eggsy performer. Edgerton. Edgerton. Yeah. Egerton, sorry. Tara Egerton. Um, I mean, Ju- Julianne Moore, Emily Watson, Jeff Bridges is wasted. He's one of my all-time favourites. Bruce, Bruce Greenwood is also in this. Channing Tatum is ha- ha- appears and it's almost like you could only film him for a day, so you had to kind of cram in... You get the sense that a lot of those performances were one-day shooting, don't this you? This feels to me like yeah. somebody has made a movie after, like... Um, Purple monkey dishwasher. It's like somebody purple monkey dishwashered what a movie was and like 15 people like whispered from ear to ear and then somebody was told this is what a movie is but through this kind of blur and it's like somebody made a movie and they had no idea really what a movie was. They had all the bits in there but it just didn't. It's so long. It's so long. It goes for almost two and a half hours. Apparently the director had to cut it down from the original length as well. Do you know this film is double, it's almost exactly double the length of Gus Van Sant's Elephant and I don't raise that because it's a point of comparison. It's like that is such a perfectly tight film. Mm. This film is double the length of Elephant. I actually wonder if this is a case, though, where there was an enormous amount of plotting that they then had to reduce and cram and condense down so much. That is... that In a weird way, it may, have, it may have been better as a longer film if they could actually let these characters and plot points breathe a bit more, but it's just kind of a jumble of this happens and this happens. Look, I, I didn't... I didn't hate this at all, but I, I just found myself losing interest and kind of that, that, that yeah. sinking feeling. It was sort of a real superficial, I don't mind that I'm watching this, but um, the next day I woke up and kind of wish I hadn't seen it because it's, it's, it's taken the enjoyment out of the first I film. I was curious about that, like how, how closely, I mean, is it a case, because I was really, cons- like, is it a case that I'm just not getting this because I didn't see the first well, one? Like how directly weird. is it? A few people have said this film is, you know, bigger and more outrageous and more controversial than the first film, but it's too much of a good thing. But there's nothing about this film that I think they build on with the first one. It's a step back from everything that made the first film so much fun. The first one had a kind of camp quality. It played the class stuff in a really nice way. It played the simplicity of the mentor role, the Colin Firth, um, Egerton uh, character role. And that was all quite nicely done. And it had the um, excessive violence that I think... Uh, Matthew Vaughan is actually quite talented at directing and choreographing action sequences. They're the highlights of this film. In fact, there are some sequences in here which were the equal of 
probably my other favourite action film this year, which is going to surprise both of you, which is John Wick 2, which we, I wished I'd gotten oh, to talk about. I knew that you'd turn. Of, I knew yeah. that you'd turn. This is from someone who wasn't a fan of John Wick 1 too. That's an odd thing to say. But uh, this, this film totally is more uh, out of sync than the, the original. For some reason, most people's responses to the original Kingsman came down to one line at the very end of the film and, and either turned people against it completely or they just sort of, it's left a sour taste in their mouth. This film has a number of sequences which just feel clumsy. It feels like there'd be something at home in a South Park cartoon, but here they're at odds with the the stylized action, the kind of um, the the core drama between the main male characters, and this sort of the, and the sort of spy drama that they try and kind of you know uh, play at the edges of this of this narrative, and it doesn't work. The humor falls flat. The crudeness of those sequences falls flat. I think any film in which you have a point of view from a finger disappearing into a into a sort of female genitalia to unleash a sort of surveillance object is like you can get away with that if you're Matt Stone and you're doing that in a cartoon if it's sort of like Mr. Wiggly the gerbil or whatever his name is but here it just was like what are you I know it's, I just this, said deja vu that's really weird this is taking strength <laughs> where the hell did that come from it's that that whole sequence is you know you, you could see them kind of gleefully twirling their moustaches and rubbing their hands in glee when they came up with that whole internal tracking device idea and, and they went with it to the, the full extent you could go with it so I don't, I don't know whether there's, there's, there's sort of points for that but it's it's ridiculously crude and, and offensive and I think there's one thing I hate more than but it's right- not an offensive film like it's not South Park no. bigger longer and uncut I think it would have worked in that context but here it's a kind of try hard yeah, um, tran- transgressiveness. It, it yeah. felt like it's, like the ambition of a thirteen-year-old boy come to life. Yeah, it's it's the equivalent of I, I hate it when the right always talk about political correctness, but it's the equivalent of sort of a lefty transgressive person talking about how they're anti-PC because they drop racial slurs here and there to shock people. It's that kind of really childish behaviour that that you, you see across the spectrum, and it, it's, it's so hollow. It's just so. And I think, look, I think the intent is having thought about the impressions I got from the first film and uh, reading an interview with the director. I think the idea what they were trying to do was parody the over-sexualisation of the Bond films. So that that, that, that that kind of terrible line that ends the first film and, and this kind of sequence, I think is meant to be sort of a hyperactive version of the sexual objectification of, of the Bond films. So I kind of, I understand the intent and the purpose, but the execution failed. I think that's it. It's like if you need to explain what you're doing mm. then you're obviously the film is not doing it itself and it doesn't commit to it this is yeah. the problem it doesn't if it had committed to that approach wholesale across the various characters and across the narrative then it may have worked but that that tonal discontinuity is what really just threw through me and particularly when it comes to the humor in the film it's a mean film in places too mm. i think there's a real i don't know it didn't feel well, the there was no one, joy or glee to it, it the just, first one's got a meanness to it as well but it kind of works there's sort of it's something matthew vaughan does do and also comic book writer mark miller does really well well, there's a real dark, mean humour to some of their work, which sometimes really is successful. And I thought well, the layer first, cake is the, pretty nasty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, the first Kickass, I think, works, and um, and the first Kingsman works. But in this, I know, it just all felt flat, and I, I wasn't engaged with the action. It was oh, really? um, so, there until the end. There's a big sequence at the end which I quite enjoyed, but there was still the sense of this has all been done with motion capture, digital technologies, and a lot of CGI. That, it was inventive, but I never got the rush of watching something real. For some reason, it, it sucked me in I, because it felt comic bookish in that in that way that it was 
the, the CGI in it felt like it was frames out of a comic book and it, the I guess the cartoonish aspect of the CGI, for some reason, given I normally criticise that, actually worked. Um, particularly the opening sequence, I really enjoyed. Actually, the opening was fun, yeah. Um, I'll give it that. But it's also the, the, the narrative frame of the drugs kind of cartel thing. It just fell flat, whereas the first one had that benefit of the British class system as its kind of main sort of area in which it was trying to play in, in that realm. The whole idea of the 1% exploiting the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, but the drugs thing here was just ridiculous. And it was like, is this being conservative? Is this being kind of anti-conservative? It's, figure, like, it's just yeah. so muddled yeah. as well. Yeah. You know? Well, there was, there was sort of a message in this, but it was, so, it was laid on so thick. It was so blatant. Yeah. Well, uh, dis- disappointing. Uh, um, Alex, I'm so sorry. <laughs> We're both issuing an apology to you on air, Alex. I really was watching the film thinking, I can't believe I made Alex watch this. I, because normally my suggestions that go against what you want to do pay off. Yeah, don't they, they do. They do. You've seen I some have, okay no, films that absolutely. I've twisted your arm into seeing. I think that you and I have the most oppositional tastes, I think is, is fair to say, and that there is this kind of, that there's usually a fair bit of positive give and take, I think. I think so. But, um, and that yeah. goodwill has been ruined. My, no, no, no. I think we can't hold Thomas responsible for the... I'm not taking so responsibility. I'm looking at Nelson over here as yeah, well. Yeah, you can... <laughs> you I'm, come I'm, to our country, no. Nelson. <laughs> I won't be here next week, so I'll take the blame. I'll follow my sword. Take a bullet. We've been talking about... At Kingsman, the Golden Circle, here on Plato's Cave. You're listening to Three Triple R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Nocturama is the new film by French writer, director and composer Bertrand Bonello. The film is roughly divided into two halves. In the first half, we follow various young people around Paris as they plan and carry out a series of synchronised terrorist attacks. In the second half, we stay with the group as they hide out in a department store overnight try and try not to let their anxiety, boredom and restlessness get the better of them. We're never given any explicit information about how these young people became um, a group of extremist radicals, nor do we find out what exactly their cause is. And while the film begins seemingly as if it's going to be a naturalistic thriller, it forms a more abstract shape as it unfolds. Its subject matter and style has divided critical response, which we saw when it screened at MIF, and I think Twitter exploded for those of us stupid enough to still follow <laughs> film people on Twitter. Um, it's just so it's so soul destroying. But um, Alex, you this film blew your mind. Yeah, I'm a fan. Yep. Josh, do you lay him out on the table, fan or not? Oh, could I be so, so enigmatic? I might fence it for a little bit, actually. You, you, you want to see where you I, I missed the Twitter debate. So th- I came to this knowing nothing about it. In fact, I thought, I thought it was a horror film because Nocturama was like, it's going to be about werewolves. <laughs> Alex likes it and it's called Nocturama. Yeah. So it- <laughs> or it's about Rollerama at night in this, like with werewolves. There was a lot of anticipation for it. I'm not too sure why. I think it, Is it um, the background of the director, how he's been associated No, no, I with- think it just pissed a lot of people off. My, yeah. I, I, um, I have a little hang-up with the word hipster. I, I just it's a it's a word that I find that older people tend to use to describe younger people that they don't understand, um, and a lot of the, the she just looked at me. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of the critical derision around this film was like, oh, it's just hipsters, it's just young hipsters, oh, and really? it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think this. I mean, I think is that it? it is deliberately made to you know. I think it's intended that people will have a pretty strong feeling about it one way or the other. And yeah, I'm definitely pro. I'm definitely team Nocturama. Well, I'll, I 
coming to it with this kind of anticipation for some of the controversy it's caused and how it's upset some people, I was actually surprised at how aspects of it I thought were quite restrained. Yeah, I mean, the, it the, is. I think that's it's totally... Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, well, I mean, there are members of this team who are quite violent, but as a whole, they don't seem to be a violent group. And though people do die, that doesn't seem to have been the exact purpose. The, the acts of terrorism seem to be more symbolic. And yet people die, and it's shocking what, what, what happens. But I, I thought the film was going to take a more um, difficult to wrap your yeah. head around moral stance. And I think the banality of the, the conscious banality of so much of this film is, is really mm. deliberate. I think um, the film is basically a, a group of young people from different social walks of life. So there's, there's, there's rich kids, there's kids who aren't so rich, different races in Paris. They all come together um, to plot terrorist attacks in, in Paris and they agree that they will meet after the execution of these, they will meet in a, a deserted department store so that you have part A, part B of the film um, basically mm. is, is that structure. It's very, very simple. They're, they are two distinct um, halves, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they, and they yeah. really t- are totally different. What I yep. love about this film so much, we talked about it very, very briefly when we did our Power Myth show um, and I, I think I touched on this but didn't get right into it, um, is... It reminds me a little bit... I think it's a really good film about terrorism, not because it's this overt action film, not because it's a heavy-handed metaphor or there's no finger-wagging with it, but just the fact... What I, what really affected me with this film... Um, sorry, I'm trying to articulate this very, very precisely... Um, is how the people who are susceptible to committing these acts, how susceptible they are to the culture that they're rebelling against. And the only other film about terrorism that I've seen that has articulated that as well is Chris Morris's Four Lions. Oh, oh good comparison. Um, Chris, I don't, Chris Morris was on the IT crowd. He did Jam. He's like this great British comedian. And Brass Four, Eye. Yeah, Brass Eye. Uh, Four Lions is a, is a, is a black comedy. Um, but it's the same thing. It follows a group of terrorists. Um, and it's, it's a comedy. So this is... Nocturama is not a comedy. But it really shows how susceptible this group of young people who have committed these acts are to the very culture that they're trying to destroy. Mm. When they're caught mm. in this shopping mall environment, they you know, they suck in they get sucked into consumerism, they get sucked into capitalism. And it's about how blurry and how tenuous those lines are. And I just think it's so powerful. And I love the micro. I love that micro and I love that banality. And I, I, I um there's an amazing kind of sense of having themselves reflected back to them. They, they, they see themselves as detached and maybe above it all, but there's some really striking stuff in the second sequence where they almost literally reflect back at us. It's not too much of a spoiler, but, but one kid sees a mannequin dressed identical to him, and that's one of my favourite images yeah, from the film. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. image. Um, well, and almost all the characters go through some mirroring process yes. within the department store. I mean, I think you can look at it as, as an allegory. I think it allegorises the revolutionary process. The, yeah. the way the structure of the film is the a sense of excitement, the build-up, the anxiousness, the waiting for the event, and then the way the revolutionary moment after the the, the revolutionary act or the terrorist act, or however you want to sort of in, interpret it, succumbs to its own decadence. So when we see these characters eating and drinking wine, they're kind of in, living in bathtubs, they're getting drunk, the way they be, sort of re, are reincorporated in that cycle of consumerism and, and commodification, mm. and also, you know, kind of quite a telling moment, I think, which I really enjoyed, the where, where they sort of bring in the proletariat, and of course the consequences of that I think are quite symbolic in terms of the way it fits in with that overall allegory of the the revolution. I think it was the filmmakers are quite smart to 
cast the film like, and this is sound, this is a clumsy way of describing it because it's not necessarily a criticism, sort of united colours of Benetton in terms of class, race, ethnicity, gender, because it removes it from the specificity of this is just about ISIS, this is just about this, you know, and which I think was the potential for that danger is high given it's set in Paris, given the recent attacks in Paris. You don't want you sort of want to distance it from the specifics of a certain type of ideology, which I think works um, works for the allegory. I think my my issue with it is the in in exploring these characters in this way it doesn't necessarily have it sort of loses the sense of a commentary about the revolutionary process and that's where i thought the film could have been a bit more daring could have pushed the symbolism in in a different way i thought it was quite like incredibly well directed i think there's a certain there's, there's a remarkable sense of um grasp of of cinematic technique the slow build i thought was wonderful the way it gradually begins to backfill key moments from the characters and you know the sequences within the department store are really sort of wonderfully that shot that great blondie sequence where they're all dancing to blondie it's just euphoric it's amazing um yes and and there's another sequence where they're dancing later in the film when they the, the, a few of the characters are just shivering from uh, it's like they've just had the most incredible high or <laughs> orgasm or something it's just kind of this rapture that they're in from this moment and you just see them being overwhelmed by the consequences of their action i, I really liked how it was even stripped down further how it was sort of a film about radicalized youth and and the contrast between this highly organized cell at the start of the film i mean these people are so methodical and and calm and they just go about doing all the things they have to do it's a fairly elaborate sequence of events and putting people in the place that they they go through in this first sequence and the tension is really enjoyable as it builds and builds and builds it wasn't an unpleasant tension that we say got well i got from something like the killing ground it was sort of more of a a really enjoyable tension and then you see them completely unravel and you realize these are just kids and and the ideology is all they have to make them into grown-ups and the performance of ideology and i think and that the, that's what yeah the performance of what, ideology that's is what great... this film and i think that feeds in directly to what you were pointing out josh the idea that there's not a specific you know it's not a, it's not a specific race it's not a specific class there is this vague you know, we don't really know in depth what their politics is. They're not they're not concretely linked no. to any particular movement. Since it's, it's a vaguely anti capitalist, yeah, it's thing like, and because, it's a kind of undergraduate yeah. unrest. You yeah. know that it's it's a city, yeah, like anti capitalist, mm. and and the idea of them setting up in the in the shopping mall, I think, is beautiful. One of the things that Tara Judo, who was on the Myth Show with us, pointed out, and I was just euphoric because it was something that I'd thought, and I thought, no, no, this is probably just my experience. Was that she pointed out she was really um, struck by the fact that it was the shopping, it was a, it was a luxury department store that they're stuck in and she mentioned being a kid and having that fantasy of being stuck in a department store and I was like I thought that was just me me and it's so true and there is Thomas this ties in I think with that that they're so young Mm. that that is the you know that dream I'm sure that I saw like a TV movie or something when I was a kid two brothers get um, locked in I was obsessed with that yeah that episode was an episode or was a film there was something because I remember it was certainly in the zeitgeist but I remember thinking like that would be amazing just being locked in Maya overnight like what would I do and that that this film really taps into that and there is a kind of childish glee yeah. that is so embedded with ra- being raised in a kind of capitalist environment um, that this is, that is the thing that they articulate, that they are 
rejecting and that they're fighting against, but they're so susceptible to it. But funnily enough, it's in that second sequence where the individual personalities finally come out. And, and you know, supposedly they've been fighting the regime, but, it, but by becoming these kind of foot soldiers or whatever it is they're doing, they've suppressed their identities. But their identities do become, do, do start to, to flourish and come out. And it's also their undoing. I mean, there's lots of irony upon irony with this. Look, my really offhanded note, I, I scribbled down as soon as I saw it, is I could flippantly describe this as the Battle of Algiers meets the breakfast club you know i think my <laughs> i think my one was um, quotes. what's the goddard sh- film about the revolutionaries i've gone blank um but it's that meets michael bay yeah like okay. it's goddard meets michael bay <laughs> i can't think of one this is the worst kind of film criticism the x meets yeah, y the x we were just talking y, about this but no let's let's yeah. do it but it's, I, it's army of shadows meets, <laughs> meets the film with jennifer connelly and what's the one where she gets locked in the department store and there's the kid the guy who gets shot in pulp fiction frank <laughs> Are you making someone this at, up? Someone at home is like, it's that boom. Battleship Potemkin meets Mannequin. Um, <laughs> oh, I'd watch that. Yeah, I would so watch that. <laughs> uh, just on the point, coming back to the point about music you raised before, the Blondie sequence and Call Me, it was fascinating because there's a couple of key uses of music. There's an there's extended sequence where two of the male figures put on feminine makeup, let's say, mm. and one of them performs Shirley, Bass- Shirley Bassey's mm. version of My Way, mm-hmm. which is interesting on two levels because on the one hand you have the sense of have the kids been doing it their way? Is, is, are they in control? Are they running the, the show? Or are they sort of puppets for someone else? But My Way is such a song about commodification and like self-realisation and, you know, the promises of capitalism. So that sequence, while the symbolism is kind of quite overt, I thought the symbolism, symbolism really worked in that, in that context. And curiously, and I still haven't kind of come up with a, a reason why this may be, but the final song on the soundtrack is the, the theme the for the Persuaders, theme, yeah. the Roger Moore TV show. Yeah. I don't have a theory on that. I'm like, hmm, it I'm just works, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but um, I did it my way. There's a great um, uh, This American Life episode, all that Sinatra, where there's a whole segment of that about why that's his worst song ever. And people, before his death, were just praying, please let this not be the song they play over montages. And of course it was. <laughs> but they're saying, it's a dummy spit song. It's childish. It's so self-indulgent. The only decent version is the Sex Pistols version because they make it sound like what it really is, a yeah. kind of bratty, screw you, I'm doing what I want. So I think, you know, that sort of works in with, with this, this film very much as well. Uh, so, sorry, I was just going to jump in. Since I missed the whole Twitter spat post-Myth, what were the major criticisms, apart from it being a hipster-type film, what were the major criticisms? Oh, look, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's social media, so it's just I hated it. It's a terrible film. Okay, you know, so it's not, bunch, wasn't in depth. Well, I can see, I think, because in what you mentioned, Thomas, before, it, 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 it is set up as a really strong thriller <laughs> yeah. and like a really strong kind of 70s-era Definitely. Um, kind of spy. Well, sort I, think, of, I think it evokes the Battle of Algiers yeah. even at the no, start. No, I think it does it, really it deliberately of, yeah. set... I think it's really deliberately playing with those generic conventions mm. and I think that there is... A, a dis- like there's a sense of loss in that it's not the film that it tells you that it's going to be and I can imagine people being annoyed with that because it does so there's a great scene where the, a young woman with a credit card that hasn't been signed in a hotel it's nothing but it's everything you know it's a very very basic scenario and the way that he just milks the tension in this extraordinary you, you want a whole film of that you know and, it's, and I can understand people going wanting that film yeah it's, um, it's also it, it's not a traditional narrative either no. so well the film consciously rejects that exact yeah. narrative um, and, and it's quite a brave move I think to set up a film and then to say no that's not the film that we're going to do and I can see why that would piss people off I still think the tension is there in the second half I still yeah, think it really carries through in terms yeah. of that building anxiety of through through the boredom really through the kind of banality like you said banality that's a perfect description it's the banality of the act that and, waiting and the, yeah. when it's all been this really intense performativity then suddenly it's nothing and I think that there is a really kind of tragic 
inevitability to this film, like there was in Four in Four Lions too. That sense that you know what's coming. Um, I don't think that's a spoiler. I don't I mean, think I it is at all. Very, no, you know where it's going quite clearly. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I keep it's a, Four Lions is a strange film. If you've seen Four Lions, it's a strange film to compare this to. Mm. But I think that they're both very good films about terrorism because they're not what we expect films about terrorism to be, which gives them room to play with ideas and to explore angles on the phenomena that we don't normally think about or talk about. I loved it. I'm, this is one of my I films of the it. year. I, like, this is in my top five for the year. Yeah. I just adore this film. Yeah, I'm so glad you made me watch it. So <laughs> this week's Alex and Thomas make each other watch <laughs> films they wouldn't have picked otherwise. You it's win. Good. It's good. You win. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really good one. Three. Triple. It's Only the End of the World is the most recent film by French-Canadian writer, director, producer, editor Xavier Dolan. It's an adaptation of a 1990 play by French playwright Jean-Luc Lagasse about Louis, a successful 34-year-old playwright who visits his family for the first time in over a decade to inform them that he has a terminal illness. Upon arriving at the family home, Louis is confronted by a tsunami of emotions as his mother, brother, sister and brother's wife deal with their feelings of nostalgia, hurt, joy, resentment, jealousy, anger and love all directed towards him. As the day goes on, Lewis finds it increasingly difficult to find the right moment to tell them his devastating news. Dolan has assembled his most high-profile cast to date, with Vincent Cassel, Marianne Cotillard and Leah Sedot playing three of the five roles in this tense and tight ensemble drama, which mostly consists of close-ups on the faces of the five characters. This has been Dolan's most uh, divisive film to date, and it hasn't enjoyed at the same levels of praise as Dolan's previous films have, although it still has plenty of supporters... Where do we all stand? Because Are you okay, Josh? You can have a little cry. Yeah, well, you're, you're, cry. you're on Team Dolan. I, I think he's wonderful, and this is an extraordinary film. I think he's, oh, yeah, gush fest. Here but we, we go. should quickly mention to people so his recent films are Ma- no, Mummy. Mummy, which we did last year. The yeah, year and Tom at the Farm. And there's also Lawrence Anyways. I killed my, killed my, my mother. mother. And the second one, which I always forget, Heartbeats. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Yeah, it's only his sixth film, and he's he's insanely young. Isn't I think he like twelve and a half? Yeah. How old is he? He's <laughs> like a baby. He's, he's very young. He's very talented. He's very good looking, and he, he fulfills multiple roles in his films. Although he didn't act in this one, he hasn't acted in his last two films. So I think there's a sense that the knives are out. People were ready to have a go People at him. People have a real hate on for this guy. Real I, I just on. I don't get. It. I think this is a masterclass yeah, in terms of editing, in terms of the use of camera. You mentioned the use of close-ups. This is this is a pretty extraordinary cast, and this is some of the best performances I've seen from a lot of these performers I've gushed about Marion Cotillard for years I've this she does something different in this film that I've never seen she plays such a skittish type of you know um, skittish character she's like a kind of cat that's terrified that's just been taken out of like a uh, like an animal farm or, or some kind of like a pet retreat place and the way she's interacting and that nervousness of having met this Lewis for the first time is so remarkable and there's one moment I think that shows just how instinctive Dolan is as a filmmaker where he's sitting on the couch next to I think her, her name's Catherine Catherine and he cuts to a shot over his shoulder from the from the back and we get a, a sense of her looking at sort of almost a reaction shot but over his back shoulder and she's just sort of studying him it's a moment where you I think later you start to sense that she's 
perceiving something that maybe the rest of the family either haven't perceived or in denial about and don't want to actually acknowledge. And it's almost as if the film slows down this shot reverse shot structure, which where there's it's almost silence between them. It is is was so kind of remarkable and so stood out because of the way it captures both her performance through subtle gesture, through subtle nuances, and and his sort of sense of nervous and anxiety. And that happens time and again through each of these performers and these characters. And you know the dialogue itself is is kind of banalities. It's sort of pleasantries. It's talking about the past. It's it's there's there's a number of conversations that repeat and they return in circles. And it's that perfect approach to dialogue where characters don't say what they're feeling. They're saying things on top of what they want to be saying, and the dialogue sort of alludes to it without ever actually hitting it. And this film is so perfect in that regard. I watched this with somebody who grew up in Paris, and they were really struck. They kept pointing out that the um, the subs and the dialogue didn't match. They were really struck by it, and I, I looked into it, and apparently Dolan did the subs himself, which is quite unusual apparently, but he actually did the translation for the subtitles himself, so that it's not a direct translation. Um, he wrote the English subtitles to fit to be more appropriate, I guess. So it's not a yeah, direct, and I really direct like translations that. don't always yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, well, they rarely work. They yeah. rarely work. Yeah. So that, and that that's a really unique look. I, I'm. Um, I don't get the Dolan hate on either. I, I like this film. I certainly wasn't as struck by it as you were, but I don't think that I have any criticisms of it at the same time. I like, I, th- I just think that he gets melodrama and I just have so many, just so many bongs are packed for that. Like he understands Finally, that. Finally, yes, we're waiting for <laughs> someone to mention the catchphrase. He, he just has such a, a deep understanding of the potency of melodrama um, and why it's important and the politics of it. And, you know, I don't mean like, capital P politics, just the personal politics and the gravi- gravity of it and the, the, the importance of it and the heft of it. Um, he's a really old school melodramatic filmmaker in, in the, you know, like Douglas Sirk and Fassbinder, like I think he's that level um, you know, he's, he's kind of understanding of what f- what melodrama is and what it does. This film is unapologetically a melodrama. Yeah. It's not it's not something else with elements of melodrama and I think that, that maybe, maybe it's just that, maybe that's why it pisses people off because he's unapologetically a, me- a melodramatist I don't even know if that's a word. Well, it the, is now. The, the funny thing is melodrama is probably one of my least favourite genres yeah. I don't dig it and I, I, I always come to Dolan's films a bit tentatively I'm not a fan and a couple of his films I haven't engaged with but I I, I love Tom at the Farm I really like Mummy Um, and then hearing that this one wasn't warmly received I saw it reluctantly and it blew my mind I think this is (laughs) I think this is an astonishing work and I'm bewildered that it has had such a poor reception because it is so beautifully crafted I mean just the act of putting all these isolated characters into these isolated tight close-ups for most of the film is visually profoundly effective it is such a powerful technique and he obviously is somebody who knows film style backwards and maybe some of my hesitation towards him in the past has been I think he's overplayed the cleverness of his film style but this all complements the work so perfectly. And it's extraordinary that this is based on a, a stage play. And you kind of feel that and you don't care. Like, stagey films yeah, sometimes Yeah, I think it's kind of unapologetic about this is a that. Real, yeah, this is a real strong ensemble. Like, I love the fact there are just five characters. And yet so much of the, the themes and the dialogue and the characters feel like classic Dolan characters. I mean, the mother could have been out of He's any so of his other films. He's so good at these, these mothers of adult children. I think that that's his superpower. Yeah. Like, he could just direct those women. <laughs> In just an extraordinary, it's the performances that they give him, and that he—it's just an incredible collaborative 
Um, obviously, in Mummy, I think that's sort of you know a, a kind of case in point. But here, I think it's just as strong. And like you said, Josh, that 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 dialogue, and maybe this is more from the theatrical tradition, where what they not what they're saying is not what they mean. But these actors give such powerful performances, you totally understand what they mean. I mean, Vincent Cassel is is also a, a terrifying force of nature in this film, and he's the way he belittles his wife is so appalling. And yet, by the end of the film, your heart is also breaking for him because you just see the pain beneath this rage. I mean, it's a, it's a, yeah. This is this is such a, a strong work. It's, was, it's, sorry, Vincent Cassell. I had to punch. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you go. So you go that's to, your segue. Point, are you going to yellow card me? No, go for it. <laughs> um, I think in many ways Cassell's been working towards a role like this because it's so consciously. Even if you've never seen him before, I think that you would be quite struck by the performance. But if you are perhaps like me, familiar with his work. It does, it really feels like there's been this kind of build-up or this momentum towards this point where so many of his characters are these kind of hyper-aggressive, hyper-masculine and there's always some kind of spectacular, not a finale, but, you know, some kind of spectacular outburst and here this film scales that right down. And I think that Partisan, the Australian film from a few years ago that he did, used his broader persona in a really interesting way and in a really powerful way. And I think Partisan's one of the best films about fatherhood that I've seen in years. But I think this film uses Cassell's just as strongly um, in that, you, that he brings that intensity to it. Um, and you know that there's going to be some kind of Cassellian explosion. Um, and it's so low-key, really, in terms of his other films. I just wanted to come back to that point you made about um, the theatricality. I was aware when I was watching it that it, it was reminiscent of that common theatre trope where you have characters who come together either for a vacation or, or for whatever reason there's a, a reunion and the, the, you know, the secrets from the past come out. That's such a kind of common trope for, for theatre. But where I think um, Delan manages to make this so cinematic is through that insistent use of the close-up. And, it, and curiously through flashbacks as well and you're not sure if it's um, sort of fantasy sequences or it's actually sort of these moments, memories that are triggered by being in the house. There's, there's it's kind of a, a different use to flashback here that he has done in the past in the sense that you have a character struggling with nostalgia, struggling with being back, and then you have this, these two key moments that are so stylistically distinct from what's going on within the house and they both are abruptly ended. One, he, he suddenly starts vomiting and he, it takes us out of the flashback and the other one, he's abruptly interrupted by the, the Kodiar character. So again, there's that sense of nostalgia isn't allowed to have its sort of per- pervasive sort of fantasy sway. We're actually brought back to reality consistently and again, it's just that smartness of, of the filmmaking techniques and, and I think you're right, it comes back to the way he, he toys with melodrama in different ways and I thought the use of music here, which I know when we reviewed Mother, there was sort of a, a difference of opinion in terms of the use of popular music. But again, here I think it's it's really profoundly interesting. Yeah, that was, my, that was my only downside. I really I struggled sure with Mummy. Yeah. Um, I really, really struggled with the use of music in Mummy. Um, and for, it just worked here. It just, I don't know, it was the same kind of trick, I guess, the same kind of... Um, approach to using these kind of pop songs and I feel like similar to Tom at the farm the style was in service of the narrative yeah, better here, yeah. I think rather um, than um, be, being uh, overtly flashy I mean there's some great moments in Mummy but they always felt like this is our big moment of film style where I think he, uh, me personally think so anyway where this film and Tom at the farm felt more like traditional film maybe I'm just a traditionalist <laughs> did you guys cry this, this one, did you have a big cry at the end I it, felt pretty upset I, I was pretty did. wobbly I had, yeah. a little, I had a little wibble it snuck up on me and again I think yeah. that's the, the potency of him as a filmmaker that it doesn't go for the arch obvious sentimentality and that at the end when things don't necessarily blow up in the way you expect them to that that for me is what makes things more 
powerful. I was trying to think of a of a kind of an analogy, and I think it's if you can imagine like the teardrop that that teeters on the edge of your eyelid, but doesn't sort of spring forward. That moment where you're not sure, and the tear could kind of go back in, or it can kind of cascade and, and unleash a torrent of tears. That's pretty much where I was at the end, and then then it finished, and I <laughs> I needed sunglasses because you know there was a torrent of tears. Just on this this question about the ending, though, without giving too much away, there's a sort of a visual flourish that he uses towards the end. And yeah, I was curious what do you think? people seem to it worked for me, and and I I think it's strange that it worked for me. I think he earned it. Yeah, I think that. Um I don't know if I can say I was totally fine with it, but I remember kind of nodding and thinking, you've earned the right to this. There is a very overt, what did you call Mother last week, Thomas? Symbolism the movie? Yes. Symbolism the movie, yeah. yeah. it's a very overt. Yeah. Um, in, in another context, we would absolutely hammer the nails in the coffin, <laughs> but I think he earns the right to it. I think that Look, that's, I, that's how I felt I about it. I even forgave him for using that Moby song on the end credits. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, was, that is a song I never need to hear ever again. Uh, that, that was the only mishap with the soundtrack actually that wretched Moby song at the end but um look, oh, I, wretched. Yeah. <laughs> I think don't, wretched don't hold back <laughs> tell us what you think the heart of what I think is the, 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 the one thought I had at the end of this film which is what it nailed is that people especially family who love each other with such intensity it manifests so often into anger resentment and jealousy and that's absolutely heartbreaking and I think that's what this film just so perfectly perfectly captured a, a, a unit that is on the decline it's been destroyed it was destroyed years ago when, when he left um, and although everybody wants him to come back and they want to embrace him there's just too much baggage but I think it's that amazing thing that you feel at the end these people all love each other but the intensity intensity of that love means they're treating each other appallingly and that is such a core fundamental human tragedy and the and the dramatic potency of characters who are unable to articulate those reasons why so they have to talk around it and you know and blow up in, in sort of extreme ways <laughs> I think this is a fantastic film that, that, and, and Marion Cotillard's character who there's that hint at the end that she maybe gets it she yeah. maybe knows a bit more than everybody else but the casting I, I like is the ambiguity I mean of I that. think that you know we're talking mm. a lot about Delan as an act as a director but I think that um, obviously the casting on this film I I just don't. I can't imagine it with different actors. Nope. Just can't. Not one of those actors I could imagine anybody else in. I think it's some of the best work that I've seen Cotillard do. Yep. Yeah. Um, Leah Sado is one of the strongest. Yeah. Leah Sado, um, I think, is the the thinking person, Scarlett Johansson. I Ooh, think nice she's earned that that yeah, right. She's extraordinary me. in this. <laughs> I think of her. Oh, yeah. Um, Sorry. Um, yeah. Are you being a not thinking person? Those rose tattoos too. Those sleeve tattoos are pretty. Yeah. Extraordinary. She's great. Yeah. Actually, we we're running out of time, but we haven't spent much time on her. Again, a really complex character who who sort of these really mixed feelings she has for her brother are really really heartbreaking um, yeah, it's good to see her get some really good material and as holding well. her own against actors yep. of the caliber of of Cassell and um, Cotillard, like an, an unflinching. She's just unflinching. She absolutely goes to work and and produces, you know, produces the goods in the same kind of capacity as these quite quite impressive peers. We've been talking about it's only the end of the world. It's available on Stan. It's just popped up on Stan, which is why we're talking about it tonight. But I think it's been on iTunes, Google Play, and various other video on demand services for a while now. It's available courtesy of Transmission Films. I feel like Australia just collectively dropped the ball on this film. Like, I only heard about it by accident, seeing somebody <laughs> on Twitter mention they had just <laughs> watched it, and I thought, oh, I thought that film was long vanished or unavailable. So, look, if you, if you can get access to it via any of those services, we do really strongly recommend that. Tonight, we also talked about Kingsman the Golden Circle is on wide release courtesy of 20th Century Fox, and Nocturama is available on Netflix courtesy of Wild Bunch. 
You've been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Josh Nelson on Plato's Cave. The podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. On next week's show, Alex, you're going to be away for a couple of weeks. Josh, you're going back to the States. You're leaving us. I'll be away for a couple of weeks. Oh, you're always in our heart, Josh. But but like ET, I'll be back, maybe. (laughs) Please swing by whenever you're in the country. I'll be right here. (laughs) Don't worry, you can put up with me. I'll be around and I'll drag Emma and Cerise in as well and we'll chat about some stuff. Look, that's it for us. Keep listening to Triple R as local and or general with Jason Moore is up next. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.